Hello, and welcome to another episode of the 94 MBA podcast. Yes, that's right. A new name because we have rebranded as a website. We are no longer the 94 Feet Report uh, and no longer the 94 Feet Report MBA podcast. We are now the 94 as a website, and this is obviously going to be the 94 MBA podcast, the headlining podcast of the soon-to-be-revealed new podcast network on our brand, um, which will be revealed later on as well as a new website. But check us out um, on Twitter at the 94 underscore. Um, you can check out all our, our new logos and all of our, our good looks. Um, but yeah, this is the 94 MBA podcast moving forward. Corbin, how are you doing today? You know, Eric, I'm doing okay. I've been waiting and waiting for like the last second, you know, force a trade superstar type deal. And so now that that's finally come to light, I'm sated and a little bit satisfied as, as an NBA fan and a part-time, you know, part-time uh, mind reader, fortune teller. Because I figured this would happen. I just, I had a feeling, but here it is, you know? Yeah, I mean, well, we're talking about Jimmy Butler. We'll talk about that yep. for a little bit right now. Uh, I think I think a lot of people like saw the, the tension and saw that this wasn't going to end well, at least for the Timberwolves and for their players and Thibodeau and Butler, whatever. Um, but I'm not sure everyone – I don't think I saw a trade request coming right away. I mean, I think that there probably would have been something in, during the season. Um, it, I thought that they would try and make it through the first couple months and then as they kind of – were a good team but didn't get along off the court. They just it would just kind of like blow up in their faces. Um, but it's blown up in their faces now. <laughs> um, so you know, obviously, if anyone who I don't know how they haven't heard yet, Jimmy Butler has requested a trade. Um, his three teams on his list, his his supposed list um, revealed by Wojnarowski was the are the Clippers, Nets, and Knicks. Um, then it was later reported that the Clippers are his actual preferred destination of the three. Then it was also reper- ref- I mean, reported that Thibodeau is not looking to trade him. But then there's another report that ownership, Glenn Taylor, is probably going to step in and, and you know figure out if they're going to have to trade him because obviously you don't want to lose him for nothing. It's a, it's a real mess. Um, right off the bat, I can tell you this. I had the Timberwolves in the playoffs when I was going through like my predictions a couple weeks ago and as we did these division previews, I think I had them in the playoffs. I'm, I'm swapping them out. Um, they're, they're not going to make the playoffs this year. Even if they keep Butler, it's going to be a complete mess. And if obviously if they don't keep him, which a lot of people expect, um, they're just not going to get enough of a return, I think, for Butler to be competitive this season to make the playoffs. Um, but that shouldn't be the priority because when you have Tom Thibodeau as coach and president of basketball operations – you just have the feeling, and there have even been reports that he's looking for win-now veterans over young draft picks and, and young players, which it, it just shouldn't be the case, considering the fact that Carl Anthony Towns, their best player and a top 15 player, arguably, in this league, um, is only 22. So, you know, this is going to get messy. You know, it's, it's already messy on that end, but on the other end, you know, the Wolves' future could get messy because if Thibodeau is not is in charge of making this trade, which he will be unless he's removed as president of basketball operations, um before they make the trade, he's probably going to sacrifice their future for the upcoming season, a season in which they're going to be in an extremely tough Western Conference with teams like the Nuggets and Lakers behind them, improving to jump ahead of them. So um, what are your initial thoughts on the trade request and the situation and also you know, what Thibodeau will do in terms of maybe either negotiating with these three teams or just negotiating for any kind of trade package? So, okay, so joking aside, I was actually stunned that he demanded a trade at all. I figured you were talking about maybe having a trade for Jimmy Butler or him requesting out, you know, during the season, as they get to trade season, that sort of thing. He's already been in circles since, I don't know, the past two or three years as far as midseason trade acquisition possibilities. But I thought he would just run his course out of Minnesota, be a free agent next year, and just bolt. 
So the fact that he demanded so soon and to such a select amount of teams is surprising. At the same time, we've already seen this happen with Kawhi Leonard this year and Paul George, where they have a list of teams they'd like to be traded to, and front office, you know, front office and management goes, you know what, that's nice, but we're going to trade you here, and they trade them. And in Paul George's case, it worked out well for the team that acquired him, the Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, the verdict is still out for Kawhi and the Raptors. We'll find out at the end of the year, but. I think it's interesting. I don't know. I, it's hard for me to really get a feel for Tom Thibodeau and, and what's real and what's not as far as whether he wants to trade him, whether he's just going to sit and hold him. All I know is the, the drama guy in me wants him to just say, you know, we're not going to trade him because media day on Monday will just be fun. <laughs> but on the other hand, I mean, that's a short window for teams. And then if so, I'm sure we're going to get into this just for a second here. But as far as the pieces, I mean – you know, if you're going to the Clippers, I'm assuming you would like a Tobias Harris and the A.B. Bradley seems to be the type of player that they would like. Um, for Brooklyn, it's, it's a couple pieces there. Um, for New York, um, obviously, I think the ones that um, the Timbers are going to go after, it's going to be interesting to see if New York will actually give that up, especially since if I remember a couple of days ago, management came out and said, hey, we're not going to be that type of team that, you know, trades um, premium assets for a, a player we can acquire in free agency. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, being from New York, as we both are, New York Knicks have said a lot of things over the past you know, <laughs> 15 years that never really comes to fruition. So we'll see what happens. It's all so fast and so shocking to me. Um, my bad is that they don't make a trade. It'd be interesting if they did and, and, and held him out and said, OK, we're going to we're going to make a quick trigger decision right now. I think it's going to be something that Thibodeau is going to have to talk with Glenn Taylor about. Um, kind of get what he's thinking as far as who's going to take control of the situation. And then I think the priority for the Timberwolves should be, if they are to move him, move him to the best place possible to get a return, regardless of what he wishes. And obviously, you know, the managers are going to do that anyway. But something about Coach Thibodeau as Coach GM, they they really are fickle players, like people. I just – I don't get it. I was all on Stan Van Gundy as Coach and GM. They made that trade for Jimmy Butler – I mean, not Jim Butler. I'm Billy Griffin. I was like, what? Like something about – Tom Thibodeau as both coach and you know player management basically head just kind of has me troubled from that point of view. Well, it should have you troubled because literally every coach that has had the dual roles of coach and GM or president of basketball operations has failed. I mean, it just doesn't work, and it's mainly because the coach the coach's responsibility and his job and his goal is to is to plan out this season. Like a coach right now for the upcoming season is planning their rotations and who's going to be where. The, the GM is focused on, all right, what's the team's salary flexibility two years from now? How many draft picks do they have two years from now? Do they have a couple of young guys that can develop? They're just they're such different roles that they should never be performed by the same person, especially someone who's the coach who's trying to win now, especially a guy like Tibbet who's probably coaching for his job anyways. Um, before we – yeah, before I touch upon all you said, I mean, if he's not traded by media day, we have the potential – honestly, I predict that that would be the most awkward – like coach player interaction since the Dwight Howard Stan Van Gundy when he was drinking the Diet Coke and Dwight just like comes over to him and puts his arm around him after after, I think wasn't he also requesting a trade at that point too I think I think that's what yeah same time and then Sam is like you're out for my job and he's like oh let me give you a hug not realizing what he oh just said oh my god that this is, this is greater potential than that than that moment right not there their big old bottle <laughs> um but yeah so definitely i mean they're not gonna i mean it's never been the case where a player's like i want to go to these three teams and the and the and the, his team's like sure sure we're gonna limit all of our potential returns to only those three teams because that's what you want a player without um a no trade clause or anything like that so they're obviously gonna open up the entire markets 
it, it just like I, I honestly don't know what the package would be. I mean, Zach Lowe had an article that came out a couple hours ago about Jimmy Butler's trademark, and he started off by saying that the market is cool for a guy like Jimmy Butler because, I mean, there are a couple of reasons why. One, he's 29, entering his 30s, and he's a Thibodeau guy who's played a lot, a lot of minutes. Um, over the, and honestly, if I'm any team, I'm kind of worried about that next five-year contract because he wants the five-year max. I think it's five years, $190 million. Yeah. That's going to take him to what, age 34, 35? Yeah, I think so at he's age, 29 now, yeah. I think at age 34, they'd be paying him like $40 million. I would be scared if I'm any team. I mean, right now he's really good, and he'll probably be really good for another two years or, from, or so. But that's gonna he's going to wear down pretty qu- – I mean, all the Thibodeau guys have worn down quickly. Lou Deng's what, 33, and he, he, he just didn't play last year. I, I mean, no, at jo- all. Joakim Noah, what is he, 33, 34 now? I mean, I mean I don't, I don't yeah. Know. Like these guys. I think he might be 32, 33. Let me check that. Yeah, I mean, but they, you're right. He's 33. He doesn't turn 34 until February. Like they just okay, wear still. down so quickly. So, I mean, in terms of Jimmy Butler, I would be very concerned about paying him that max. That's why – it's pretty easy to understand why the market is so cool on him because why give up assets, A, if you can sign him next year, um, and B, if you're worried. I mean, I'm sure these teams that are considering trading for him are, are worried about giving him that contract extension. Even the teams on his list that are like, oh, yeah, it's great. Jimmy Butler wants to come play for us. But do we really want to pay Jimmy Butler that? The other thing is, like, does Jimmy Butler, does having Jimmy Butler on your team actually allow you to recruit another star? Because I think that's what the plan is. Like, Jim, Jimmy Butler, the three teams on his list – can all have the, the possibility of, of carving out another max cap space slot for star next summer as well to join him, like a, like a Kyrie Irving if he goes to like the Knicks, which has been hot, a big rumor recently. But does having Jimmy Butler on your roster really entice other free agents? Do people want to play with Jimmy Butler? I mean, this is like his second team in a row that he's had the you know issues and chemistry issues in the locker room, and you know he's all about winning, but you know now he wants to go to these teams, these three teams that are not really close to contending this season, especially the Nets of the Knicks. So what does that say about his focus on winning versus his, his focus on being in a big market and being the guy and then recruiting another star to play with him? This this whole dynamic in terms of just like on a personality level and then obviously on the court in terms of like the X's and O's of basketball is so fascinating. Um, but it all comes down – for me, it all comes down to how Tom Thibodeau and the Wolves handled this. And this trade, this potential trade, could have huge ramifications for their future if they don't get young picks and assets and they instead look for guys like a Damari Carroll um, or like Avery Bradley. They, they need guys for the future because they can – Towns and Wiggins and the other guys, and Tyus Jones and everything, even though he doesn't really play. Um, they're, th- that core, or at least Towns, like, I don't really count Wiggins as part of the core as we talked about in our division preview of the Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, Towns is 22. Like, there's no rush here. Like, you, can, you can get young picks and assets in this trade and retool, probably without Thibodeau, and just to bring in a different coach and kind of have your next Timberwolves core for the next couple of years. But I don't know. I don't, I don't have trust in Thibodeau and the Wolves to kind of manage this properly. Either it ex- extends too long and kind of has too much of an effect on the locker room and that gets them off to a bad start, um, or they trade him for the wrong package. That's just what I think happens, honestly. No, I'm in very, very right on tune with doing that because it's just – I don't know. It is a question I guess I should ask you. I saw this on Twitter. I'm sure you did as well. Um, ESPN had a funny little – and I say funny because I thought it was hilarious um, – uh, to, a, a tweet they put out as far as uh, what could have been if the Timbers had made that Jimmy Butler trade at all with uh, Chris Dunn, Zach Levine, Larry Markkinen, um Andrew Wiggins, and Carl Anthony Towns. And I laughed and was like, that's still an 11 seed. Like, <laughs> I mean, was it worth it for the Timberwolves to have made the playoffs that you know this past year and break that, I think it was a 12-year drought, 13-year drought, for all of the drama that's here now? I think that's another way I'd like to kind of go into it real quick because – I mean, it's it's a total cluster 
I don't want to finish the word there. It's a total cluster mm-hmm. mess because there's no way out of this that I think works in all parties. I think you've passed the point of no return as far as relations between the tension, as we already talked about, between Jimmy and Cat, which we'd heard, and Jimmy and Andrew Wiggins, which is also a thing. And, and you know, according to like you said, words that um, Cat won't sign the extension until after the Jimmy situation is rectified. And obviously, if the Timberwolves have anybody that has any sense as far as the NBA is concerned, they're going to try to get Cat that max extension. Anybody with, you know, Flying, I mean, someone could just come and see and know that, okay, he's their next great piece moving forward. He deserves a max extension. Andrew Wiggins is going to be there regardless of the fact, you know, just because he's there, unless another team thinks that, you know, they see any potential in him that can make a move. But this is year five for him, and if anything, he's gotten just worse. It's not not worse. It's just – he. I think he is what he is. He's a surprisingly little upside player for someone that we – and we've talked about this at length, the path, you know, over the last couple pods that we've done – about remember the days of him and Jabari Parker and um, like who was going to be the next great kind of forward and here we are with both of them. But to bring it back, if you were a Timberwolves fan, would you rather have had that one playoff appearance to make up for what is going to just be a nasty divorce? I think there's no way that all parties come out unscathed here. Yeah, I mean, can I like cop out and just be like, and just wait until they get this trade package for Jimmy? Yeah, Butler? because I can take that. Because I mean, it, it, yeah, I saw that tweet about what could have been that team. What could have been would not have been close to the playoffs last year no. in the West. Like that team no. would have won like thirty four, thirty five games max. So in that sense, they won what forty seven, I think, last year. They were honestly, they were on a fifty to fifty one win pace. Yeah, when Butler Jimmy was, was injured. Yep. So you know, in that sense. I think it was worth it, but then again, you get to this point where it's like, oh, now it's going to be broken up, and I, I think the key part here is to wait for what they get in return. If they just get a couple of, like, veterans and that and, and try and go for, like, an ace seed, I say no. If they can actually carve out, and I'm not sure they will because, again, the market seems to be pretty cold, and I'm not sure teams are really all in on Jimmy Butler, um... If they can carve out just like a couple of maybe like a young player and a draft pick for Butler and then retool and then use those assets to actually build a team in like two years from now, that's a good 45 to 51 team. Then I think it, it works out OK. But I think it's crucial that we wait for this trade package because, you know, if they trade him for, for veterans like Damari Carroll's and, and guys like that, Avery Bradley's just straight up um, and not get like a young player or a draft pick. I think it, it has like disaster written all over, especially when you factor in the fact that they're going to be looking for a new coach and or GM um, maybe this time next year. Uh, I but think, isn't that such a Tibbs move, like to do just what we talked about? Avery Bradley, an uh, aging vet who's coming off a down year, something of that sort, and Tibbs still thinks he can milk what little else he wants out of him to go and fight for the AFC. Like that screams to Coach Tibbs. I don't mean to be, you know, I, I know you're saying to be more reserved and to look out and wait till the package comes and just analyze it from there. But just knowing what we know of this man and his track record, I mean, for him to say, you know, I'm going to be more of a talent evaluator and, and take a pick and a, a young player who can grow and form the next great, you know, Timberwolves core with with Cat and I guess Wiggins. But I don't see that. You know what I mean? Like I see him giving dang major minutes off the top if they get rid of <laughs> if they get rid of Butler and then bringing in. Like I said, Avery Bradley screams like a Tibbs kind of player. Didn't he actually like was he on the was he on the coaching staff when Bradley was there? No, he was he was probably already on the Bulls in 2011. Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, they yeah he just was. That was his first year, I think. That was... Yeah, but uh, that's still the type of player he'd like. I mean, I don't know. I'm with you though, but it's it's just hard to I... kind of put past what we know of the guy. It's like saying, oh, Phil Jackson. You know, as coach of the Knicks would have made a nice heady play moving forward that wasn't entirely by accident, you know, a.k.a. Um, Porzingis. 
I mean, I mean that that's why Thibodeau should be gone before they trade Butler. But obviously, that's just prob. I mean, that's very, very, very unlikely. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, even after they trade Butler, I think that he's just got to go. Um, especially, I mean, definitely as as president of basketball op- operations, but even as coach. I mean, they had a good year last year, as I said. They were on pace for fifty wins. We'll see what they get in return. Maybe they get a young player, a veteran, and a draft pick, and they can still be somewhat competitive. Even though I, I wouldn't expect that to be the case. Um, but there's just his stuff, his team building, um, his defensive schemes, none of it has really worked overall. So, I mean, if they're going to be focusing on, you know, and this is where ownership has to come in and be like, listen, Towns is 22. We need to sign him to that extension. He's young. Let's get young stuff, assets in return for Butler and retool. Thibodeau's probably going to be like, no, I don't want to do that. And then they say, okay, fine, you're you're gone. Like that, that should be the case if Thibodeau's so insistent on, on being competitive this year because it, once they trade Butler, no matter what they get in return, even if it's win now veterans, it's not going to be up to equal. It's not going to equal Jimmy Butler. I mean, you know, he's a top 15 player. He's probably in my top 13 or even close to my top 10. Um, you're not going to get that in return. You'll get some nice veterans that can contribute here and there, but you know, bigger role for Andrew Wiggins doesn't bode well for the Timberwolves as we know who he is at this point. Um, and so they probably won't be competitive. Like I said, the Nuggets and Lakers finished below the Wolves last season. They both got better, and obviously both are expected to make the playoffs, and that obviously puts pressure on guy, on teams like the Wolves and the Blazers and the Spurs to hang in there. And once you trade Butler, I, most people would predict that the Timberwolves aren't going to make the playoffs. So, I mean, I wish they had somebody else running this trade situation than Tom Thibodeau. Um, but Anybody. I, I agree with you. I think he's going to prioritize winning now. Um, and if he doesn't, if they get a trade package that's really focused on young assets and players, I think we kind of would know that ownership you know, really stepped in and, and took control of the situation. Yeah. And, 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 you know, like you said, it remains to be seen. All we can do is wait and see at this point. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, once a trade, once and if, I guess, a trade goes down, we'll obviously have a full breakdown of it on the pod. But let's turn our attention to our next division preview. Um, this will be our fourth. So we're well, over halfway. We're going to go to the Southwest Division. Last, last episode, we did the Southeast Division. We're going to go to the Southwest Division, and that starts off with the Dallas Mavericks. So in the offseason, the big move that they made well they made two big moves but obviously the one we talked about last division from the Hawks perspective of them trading down was the Mavericks trading up from pick five to pick three using their 2019 first round pick I think it's protected two through five I think um one through five um to get Luka Doncic of course many people expect and had him as the number one player in the draft class and predict that he will be a future star um then they signed, I mean, they drafted Jalen Brunson in the second round. And then in free agency, the big signing was DeAndre Jordan. They also brought back Devin Harris as just a veteran point guard. And they lost Seth Curry, Yogi Ferrell, and Doug McDermott. Um, last season, as a baseline, they were the 24th offense and the 16th defense. But interestingly enough, according to Cleaning the Glass, they had the point differential of a 32-win team, but they only won 24 games last year. Like that is, they were dead last in terms of the differential between their point differential and their actual wins. So you know, the point differential, at least the numbers, kind of reflect the fact that they might have been closer to a 30-32 win team than the 24 that they actually won last year. So that kind of makes it a little bit more interesting when you evaluate them or project them for this year. But um, two main storylines, I think, for this team is this backcourt, but it might not be the backcourt, but this duo of the future in Dennis Smith Jr. and Luka Doncic. Um, I think it came out today that Carlisle was speaking to the media, and he says that Doncic might play the four. Um, but That's so Carlisle. I mean, it is. I, I think it's really cool and it's really intriguing. I'm totally like on board with just no positions in basketball, like your guard, your wing, or your big. Um, and Doncic can play, honestly, anywhere from one to four. He's, he's a wing and a guard, um, for that matter. Um, but Dennis Smith Jr., I mean, turning the attention to him for a little bit, he had a really rough 
rookie season in terms of like actually contributing to wins. Um, his efficiency was abysmal, um, but he, he definitely showed promise, and he's obviously still a dynamic player, and I think that there's still a lot of people, including myself, who are pretty high on him. Um, just his potential using his athleticism, his natural scoring ability, um, just to become a really good above average, you know, maybe even a top end point guard in this league. Um, <clears throat> last season, you know, he averaged 15.2 points, 5.2 assists, 3.8 rebounds per game. It's pretty good, tra- good, you know, traditional counting stats. He only shot 31% on threes, and his overall true shooting percentage was 47.3%, which is really bad. Um, I think that adding Doncic um, will obviously take a load off of him offensively. He can probably be more efficient. Adding DeAndre Jordan as a pick-and-roll partner um, and vertical threat will maybe improve his playmaking and his just overall grasp of the offense. Um, but you add Doncic um, to Dennis Smith Jr., you, you've definitely got two centerpieces for the future. I'm higher on Doncic than I am Dennis Smith Jr., but both, I think, project to be really good. Um, and obviously that's a dynamic duo that you can kind of build around in a pretty easy way um, because they both can create an attack off the dribble. They can both create for others or set them set teammates up. Um, you know, Doncic has enough of a shot, of a consistent shot to keep defenders honest. Dennis Smith Jr., at least he took a lot of threes to keep defenders honest. Hopefully he can improve that in percentage. Um, you know, Doncic can play multiple positions, and he obviously, I think, has the ability to be at least average on defense. And Dennis Smith Jr. can be pretty good defensively. He's obviously a little bit undersized, but he has the effort and the tenacity to be pretty good on defense as well. So I don't know about you. I'm, I'm excited about this, this duo of the future that the Mavericks have in Dennis Smith Jr. and Luka Doncic. Oh, yeah, I definitely think Dallas made the right move. Um, even, you know, he was the best prospect, debatably, in my opinion, in the class. But um, to get him at number three is just great, even if, you know, we're accounting for the fact that Mads had to give up that extra first-round pick to grab him. And I also think having an unlocker like Doncic, and you already said this as far as flexibility and the ability to mix and match lineups, but it it set them up that they can attack just early offense, I think, with – um, Dennis Smith Jr. being able to run up and down the floor and Doncic also getting down the break. That helps him out and also mitigates a, a weakness that was in this game, which is, you know, coming off a switch that the defense is trained, the, the, di- the, the dynamic ability off the ball wasn't quite there, at least from what I've seen. And of course, I'm not, I'm nowhere near uh, Alex West or any of our other <laughs> great, uh, other great uh, college uh, NBA or college basketball analyzers here. But from what I saw, you know, break, the, the break off the dribble, he's a very good dribbler and can definitely get into the lane. But when the defense is set, it can be a little more of a struggle. And also, I fear that the athleticism on the NBA level, yes, you know, your league or where, he, where he's playing was definitely t- tough and more tougher than, than college in, in certain aspects. But in that same token, they, they simply don't have the athleticism, just the end-to-end kind of ability that the NBA has. You know, it's, it's still not a great um, – barometer for it i think there's still gonna be an adjustment process for him so having him in the four spot is actually kind of neat because you have in dennis smith and Doncic two players who can take the ball and get up and down the floor harrison barnes can get back to his type of game which i think is is more of a finisher uh maybe like a trailer three type dude um you know he's i don't think he's great like the offensive fulcrum like, you know, you play through him, he's your best man moving forward. But I think you put him in spots where all he has to do is finish plays. Like, don't give him too much responsibility. And I think with Doncic and Smith there, and me being high on Smith makes it a little easier, but that's going to work. And having a player in DeAndre Jordan who's rim, rock, rim running will kind of take some pressure, be a release valve for both Doncic and Smith, I think it's going to be immensely helpful. And you know that Carlisle is going to do his multiple ball handler lineups. You know, Devin Harris was brought back. You know, J.J. Barea is still going to be a very um, very key part off the bench for them. There's going to be some funky lineups, but it's going to work. And I think 
having Doncic who can add another dimension with pick and roll and pick and pop situations, um, having um, DeAndre and his gravity on the floor, just taking it down and 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 really opening up space. And Doncic will definitely find him. I, I think this team. I'm I'm kind of going away from Doncic here and just going on to the Mavericks in general. But I'm kind of sneaky high on them, even you know, in, despite the fact that I think losing Seth Curry and Yogi Ferrell um, is more of a hit than most people are mentioning. I mean, you're not the only one. I mean, there have been a lot of people talking about the Mavericks, you know, being in that 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 area where they're competing for the eighth spot until the end of the season and ultimately falling short for most people. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like, I mean, Dennis, DeAndre Jordan was my next storyline that they finally actually yeah, landed him. Um, <laughs> I mean, he is the ideal fit. They did it. For, <laughs> he is the ideal fit for them. I mean, he provides, again, like, it might not be a backcourt, but that young duo, uh, that rim running, like you said, screening big, that'll clean up on the boards and make up for some of their defensive mistakes. Obviously, they're still young players adjusting to the NBA. Um, the question with DeAndre Jordan is, really, was was it really just a matter of him being less engaged last season, or was he just in decline? Because he was not anywhere close to his defensive prime. Um, and as he enters his 30s, it, it is something to watch, especially you know considering the fact that they only gave him a one-year deal. Um, which I liked. At first, when it was reported they were going to sign him, I thought it was just going to be like a four-year deal, um, you know, four-year near-max-level deal, some four years, like, $80 million or something like that. Um, yeah. But, you know, the fact that it was one-year deal, I, I like it quite a bit because you can kind of see if, it, if he plays well and fits well, and then they can kind of spend money on him in, in 2019 free agency or just add a different piece in, in 2019. Um, but, again, it is something to watch about him. You know, will he be more engaged, or is it just natural decline as he enters his 30s of him not being – you know, anywhere close to his defensive prime because obviously that's where he makes his hallmark in the NBA is being that obviously he cleans up on the boards. He used to protect the rim a, a, a good amount. Um, so I, that's something definitely to watch. And, you know, if uh-huh. – yeah, yo, go ahead. Oh, no, see, I'm, I'm of the opinion that it was just a, a one-year aberration. I think, you know, obviously with athleticism being a huge part of his game, when that decline does happen, which I'm just saying was not this year, it is going to be a significant factor. However, there was a lot going on in L.A. last year. I mean – Chris Paul leaving, um, you had Teodosic, who was a really good playmaker as far as finding um, Jordan, but it was a flurry. You know, he was injured. Pat Beverly was in there. Pat Beverly was injured. You had different guards going in and out. You had Blake Griffin get, got traded just before midseason. You had all the stuff about DeAndre on the trading block. Will he go? Won't he go? Um, you know, all that happening. I think he just – I think he was just not there all the way. You know, there were certain plays even where – even in other years, I mean, when watching him, where, oh, I'd go for this player, I'd attack for that block. And he would just kind of sit there, just a little bit, just slight little things where if you watch him, it just seemed more of an effort type deal. And with the tumultuous season that was going on, and I mean, the last four or five years for L.A., you could say the Clippers have been tumultuous. But this one was more so in the fact they just kind of meandered along and then had that big shakeup when uh, Blake Griffin was traded and then kind of seemed like they were going to go for something and then didn't. I just think he wasn't all the way there. And I think he'll be rejuvenated in Dallas. He's going to have them big time. He was second in the NBA at rebounding at 15 um, boards per, per game. And Dallas was in the bottom five in total rebounds and 28th in offensive rebounds specifically. And I think just having him there, and he's going to be put in spots with Carlisle, one of the great game strategists just out there. You know he's going to put DeAndre in positions to succeed, even more so than I think he was utilized in L.A. And I think that's going to be great for him because you know when he rolls, much like Tyson Chandler, which is the next great center they've had between, you know, 2011 and now, um, he was found on those rim rolls. He was he was made, uh, you know, to feel a part of the offense. And DeAndre is one of those guys that needs to be kind of coddled a bit in the sense that, you know, you give him his looks. And not really. I mean, he's low maintenance to an extent. But, you know, 2015 free agency, you kind of figured that was a big deal based off what he was saying. I think he's going to be put in spots to shine. 
and I think he's going to have a rejuvenating season, especially since he's in the role where, I mean, the Dallas needs him. Like, it's a match made in heaven. It's a match, you know, made four years ago, last time I make that joke. But it's going to it's gonna work. I'm, I'm very excited to see it. And I'm really, really on board the fact that, yes, he will be declining soon. I mean, he's just turned 30, has athleticism and stuff goes. And when that does, I mean, DeAndre doesn't really bring much more to the table. But I don't think it happened just yet. That will be such a drastic fall, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. There's two things that I'm watching for him this season. Is one is his blocks. I mean, they have steadily decreased. You know, 2015-16, 2.3 per game. 16-17, 1.7 per game. Last year, 0.9 per game. Again, like that. You know, that kind of does speak to not being as engaged and not looking to kind of defend the rim and as much as possible or as much as he can. Um, the other thing is just how he's set up offensively because obviously. Um, you know, tri- playing with Chris Paul, he-, he led the league in field goal percentage from from 2012-2013 to 2016-2017. In 2016-17, his field goal percentage was 71.4 percent. Oh, there you that go. That drops yeah. to 64.5 percent. Um, last year, it's also a 64.5 effective field goal percentage because all he does is shoot basically dunks and around the rim within three feet. I mean, around three feet. Um, from, from within three feet of the rim, he dropped to 70% last year as opposed to 75% in 16-17. And then obviously, you know, centers like DeAndre Jordan, limited offensive games, they rely on the playmakers. And obviously last year with all the injuries at guard, he didn't really have a true playmaker setting him up like he will have in Doncic and Dennis Smith and maybe like J.J. Barea and Devin Harris sometimes. Um, so I, I think those are the two things I'm watching. His, his, you know, defending the rim in terms of blocks and impacting shots and then also his field goal percentage or his percentage around the rim, um, you know, how many more alley-oops is he getting? Um, you know, can he show a little bit more offensively in terms of playing with these two young ball handlers and, and getting good chemistry with them as well? I, I agree. I don't think he's fallen off completely at all. I mean, I think we'll have a bounce-back year from him in, a, in some sense. I mean, last year he was putting up the same numbers as he has pretty much throughout his career. Um, I'm just concerned if they're looking to re-sign him next summer, he's going to be 31 in July, next July. Um, I would be worried about giving him anything more than like a three-year deal at that point. But that's, you know, obviously another thing for another day. You know, the final thing I think about this team is that they've got the, the, the solid veterans on the roster to be competitive this season or competitive enough, but also not really, they're still focused on the future. I mean, you've got J.J. Barea, you've got Dirk potentially in his final year, Wesley Matthews, Devin Harris, and then you add in Jordan there. You know, Rick Carlisle's coach will always have them playing hard. Um, my ultimate question is just do they have the talent to make as big a jump as some are predicting in the tough Western Conference, especially when, you know, two of the, you know, some of their best players are young players like Doncic and Dennis Smith Jr. who are going to have, you know, big roles and big usage and, and a lot of responsibility to set up these veterans um, in a Western Conference. That's going to be really hard. So for that reason, I'm obviously not picking them to make the playoffs. Their over-under is 34 and a half. And this was tough for me because, like I said, they had the baseline. They had a point differential of a 32-win team last year, and they kind of got a little bit unlucky, and they were tanking a little bit, and they only won 24 games. You know, if, if you're taking them from 24, I think jumping up all the way to above 34.5 to 35 is a big jump. I'm going to go with the slight under. I think they're going to win, you know, I think they win 33 games. Um, I just think it's going to be hard to win with young players leading the way for the most part. Obviously, they still got veterans like Barnes and Matthews and Jordan and Dirk, but for the most part, their two most important players for the future are two players that are going to have big roles and handle the ball a lot. And I think it's just going to be too hard to win with those young players leading the way in the Western Conference. I'm also going to take the under on them, but I'm very optimistic on their upside, at least short-term with DeAndre there. I think it's going to be a, a big boon for them 
um, both offensively and defensively, and I think he's going to be utilized well. Um, Doncic and Dennis Smith, if we get another year of progression from him, um, like you said, he put up the threes a lot. If he starts making them more, <laughs> will be great. Um, I'm going to take the under, yeah, because you already mentioned a lot of it, just youth and experience and not being an overly strong team in comparison to this tough Western Conference. But um, I, I think I think there's, there's, there's a higher ceiling for them. We're going to see what happens, but definitely the under. Yeah, I agree. I, I think this team is, is set up to be somewhat competitive this year, and then maybe they can add something next summer or just projected development from their young guys. And they project to be, you know, they project to have a really dynamic young duo for the foreseeable future, which is obviously huge to have if you have star power in the NBA, if, if both Doncic and Dennis Smith Jr. become stars. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's move on to the Houston Rockets. A uh, team that was talked about, oh boy. discussed quite a bit in the offseason. Obviously, when you're at that level, they, all you have to do is talk about how you match up with the Warriors. So um, their offseason was, was very eventful. Um, they lost Trevor Ariza and Luke Mbamute in free agency. Um, and they traded Ryan Anderson. Um, and their additions include Carmelo Anthony, James Ennis. Then the trade that was for Ryan Anderson and DeAnthony Melton for Brandon Knight and Marquise Chris. And then Michael Carter-Williams. And an under-the-radar loss was defensive coordinator, quote-unquote, basically assistant coach Jeff Bizdelic, who is retired um, just about a week ago. Um, last season, incredible season for the Rockets. They had the best offense per cleaning the glass, um, which excludes garbage time, so it's a little bit different than NBA's website. Um, and they had the sixth best defense. So, I mean, they were just elite on both ends of the floor. And, and some of the storylines that I've identified, first one is this question of how important were Ariza and Maba Mute. I mean, I think this is a question that will be answered in the playoffs, so we won't be able to answer it. I, I don't think we'll be able to truly answer it for a while um, because I, I just think that their absence will actually be felt in the playoffs and not much so in the regular season where I think that James Ennis can come in and replace one of them straight up. Um, you know, I think that he's not as good of a defender as the either Ariza and Mbamute are, but maybe he provides a little bit more offensively than, than Mbamute can. Um, I think he slots in as, as a really nice fitting piece at, at the small forward kind of wing defender position. Um, on the other hand, Carmelo Anthony brings a completely different player uh, and one that will certainly kill their defense when it matters most, which is, is obviously huge when you're trying to go up against the Warriors or any team in the playoffs where your defense really has to be top-notch in order to make it far. Um, and this ultimately, I think that this ultimately kind of leads to more minutes for Gerald Green and more minutes for Eric Gordon as they go to three-guard lineups with Paul Harden and Gordon on the court at the same time, which were, which were extremely successful last season um, but not used as much. Um, and then you move to Carmelo Anthony, obviously big name. You know, he was, it was rumored they were going to get him last year. They finally get him now this year for the minimum. Really, it's just so frustrating to talk about Carmelo Anthony because it's just like <laughs> you want to take him and just like shake him and scream, like just adapt, like adapt to being a third option. Change. Or Please, like just, just evolve. It's really just like evolving. Um, you know, I think that this is this is his best situation to actually adapt because he's going to get plenty of open quality looks. I mean, you know, if you stagger him, Maybe he plays alongside Chris Paul against the opposing bench units because obviously the Rockets, what they do is that they have Paul and Harden start and then one of them goes off. Usually it's Paul goes off and then Paul comes back to run the bench units. And that's why they were so good last year because they had 48 minutes of Hall of Fame point guard play. And they also had a Chris Paul going against opposing bench lineups, which is obviously almost a crime. Um, if you put Melo in those lineups with Chris Paul... I mean, one, I think you're certainly going to minimize his defensive issues. I mean, there's just there just aren't bench players that are going to be able to attack Carmelo Anthony like the starting players would in the NBA. And then, two, maybe this encourages him, while playing actually on the floor with his friend, to buy into more of a supporting role. I mean, that, that's the only thing I would think about. And 
you know, there was a tweet from a, a friend of ours, Kelly Eco. Um, he was tweeting that he's going to have, a, he's gonna have an <laughs> interview with uh, D'Antoni for The Athletic. I think it's coming out next week. And there was a, a thing that D'Antoni has said that he views Melo and Tucker as, as really just straight-up fours in the rotation. So maybe it, it is possible that Carmelo is coming off the bench. I mean, if they can talk him into that, that be, also would be great. See, I'm going to be mad. I'm sorry. I hate to interrupt you. I'm going to be <laughs> mad if the Houston is able to talk him out and come off a bench roll. When he was in a spot in OKC, we could have came off the bench and just saved them just a whole bunch of drama and a whole bunch of mess and probably worked out better with the way they were constructed. Oh, I'm sorry. I had to get out there. Because I saw that too and that took me off. Are you serious? I mean, I mean. That's what happens when you got Chris Paul as friend leading the way. <laughs> I mean, I guess you're right. We could be wasting our breath and he could just force his way into the starting lineup. <laughs> I mean, and, you know. I'm mellow. Exactly. Um, I think that, you know, the thing that's not talked about enough for this case is that there was or is somewhat of a need for another scorer on this team. Um, I think that a lot of people talk about how bad he's going to be on their defense and can he even play against Golden State. Um, I really I don't think so, at least, you know, more than like 15 minutes a game just because of how much they'd expose him defensively. But it's also easily forgotten just their offense was bad in the Western Conference, except for like a game or two. I think it was a game two that was pretty good. Um their offense was just bad. Um, obviously, they rely on the isolation, and you know, if Harden and Paul at that point of the season, well, if Paul's out of injury and Harden's worn down by that point, you know, and Melo could be worn down by that point too, I guess too. Um, but just having someone who can just throw him the ball and just have him score um, is something that they actually do need. I just don't think they need it um, as much as they need the, the, the defensive abilities that Ariza and Mbamute brought to the table, especially come playoff time with their switching defense. Um, so for that reason, I'm, I'm still I'm still down overall on the Mellow edition. I don't think it'll bother them in the regular season as much as people are saying, especially if he's coming off the bench or starting and playing mostly against bench units like with, with Chris Paul. And I think that James Ennis can come in and kind of replace one of Ariza and Mbamute. And I think that the absence of those two wings that they lost won't be felt as much in the regular season because teams aren't going to be game planning for the Rockets because teams don't really game plan specifically for opponent in the regular season when it's the third game in four nights or, you know, back to back and everything like that. Um, and the Rockets obviously still have a lot of talent and top star talent to win a, a lot in the regular season. I just think that their offseason limits their playoff ceiling ultimately, which is what matters most for a team at the Rockets caliber. Oh, yeah. And we were just talking about Melo. I think, and you said that, Maybe the Rockets need more offense. I agree with you. I also would like to add they need a more um, offense that that the created by the that could be created by the player themselves. Like Ariza, you know, you can shoot a couple threes, get out there. Um, Bob Mute has definitely improved as a three point shooter over the past two seasons, over the past three seasons, and you know has added little things to his game as far as you know being able to finish a little better and different things of that sort. However, when it comes to just giving them the ball and saying basically out the way I can make my own shot, that came in short supply. And you're right. Um, with with Harden and Chris Paul, by the way, I'm old enough to remember when people thought that wouldn't work. But um, mm-hmm. with Harden and Chris Paul there, you have, as you said, Hall of Fame point guard play 48 minutes a night. However, they have to do literally everything as far as, you know, manufacturing the offense, making their own offense, making the players offense. And with Melo, you have another player who can kind of do that by himself um, as far as getting his own shot, if nothing else. However, you're right. As far as the the offense for defense that you trade with Melo, I don't know if it was worth it. Um, only time will tell him, like you said, it'll probably be more of a playoff problem, especially when teams ruthlessly search for um, search for Melo out the pick and roll. It's going to be just 
brutal to watch. But we'll see what, you know, what Houston does to disguise that and cover up for them. And, and I think that, you know, Ariza and Bata Muse were, were big losses. They were Houston's best wing defenders. Um, P.J. Tucker's a great defender. I think he also benefited from versatility of having him with the Ariza and Bamute without just him being the one guy, you know. And as far as being able to switch, James Ennis has the length. You know, in theory, he has the athleticism, but I don't know if he's going to be able to switch one through three as well as Ariza did and Bamute did. Actually, I can tell you, I don't think he's going to be able to do it as well. Um, Anthony's has been a rough, rough defender. I don't think he's ever really been known as a great defender. And he's also coming. He has to. I think this is his chance to not only improve that reputation, but his own reputation because he is 34. This is fourth team so far. I mean, he's already had issues with D'Antoni in the past. I'm pretty sure it's moved out now. Um, his offensive contributions are obviously much greater than Ariza and Bamute probably combined. But defense just horrible. And I just wonder how he's going to fit in. Obviously, Chris Paul's his friend, and there's a nice fit in Houston. But I, I, I'm not really high on the moves that are made. Not only just adding him, but Michael Carter-Williams in general, either as a forward has been talked about or as a deep, deep like depth guard, as a depth piece in that position, is just kind of weird for me. James Ennis is cool, but I, I think I would like him more like how we signed Joe Green last year, like an additional piece that can come in and give you something, not be like relied upon, which James Ennis will be, especially in the three spot, if you're thinking of putting, of, of treating um, Melo and, and PJ Tucker as fours. That's just interesting to me, you know? Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm down on the offseason overall, um, and I, I don't understand how Michael Carter-Williams got a guaranteed NBA contract I, within the first couple of days of free agency, because we talked about it on the last episode of the South um, Southeast Division, it was that the Hornets' issues were just how bad Carter Williams was as the backup point guard. And the thing is, he's like, making Tony Parker look good. <laughs> exactly, which is hard to do at this point in his career. Um, yep. I mean, and you know, with, with the trade that they traded Ryan Anderson, who again he would have been a, a, a nice contributor in the regular season, but is basically unplayable in the playoffs. And obviously, with that contract to get it off of that, um, you know, they add Brandon Knight, who again another report came out that he had a cleanup on his knee. Um, in the offseason, he's going to miss an indefinite amount of time, so who knows if he's going to be, be ready for the season. Um, and then they add Marquise Chris, who projects to be what I think um, is like the Montrez Harrell role from two seasons ago when Nene is resting or hurt. Harrell plays and, and sometimes starts if Capella's out as well. Um, I don't think Chris is going to play a consistent rotation spot because at the power forward position, especially if they do Mello and Tucker there, Chris is sliding over to the center position, in which case he's certainly behind Capella, and I guess in certain matchups he'll play, but Nene is still there, and obviously Nene has fallen off tremendously as he's, I think, 34, 35 now, um, but he can still give you like 10-ish, 10 to 12 minutes a night, um, and, and when they go small, they don't need, you know, three centers playing in, in a night, so Chris is, again, Chris and Knight, I'm not sure they're going to have consistent rotation spots, um, but Knight, I think, pushes Carter Williams out of the point guard rotation, for that matter, and makes him exclusively a wing, but his offensive game is just so limited that He'll it just you'll be going you know four on five on offense for that matter um, with, with Carter Williams's defender just not paying any attention to him. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that for the most part, the offseason addition that'll fit in the best and makes the most sense is James Ennis, obviously, um, as a, a, a somewhat of an idea of a three and D wing. Um, I don't think Knight really fits into, and, and I'm talking about like playoff basketball. I'm talking about what additions will actually be impactful when they come to the playoffs. I really only think it's James Ennis. I don't think Brandon Knight is playing consistently in the playoffs. I don't think Chris is playing consistently in the playoffs. I think Carmelo will probably play consistently in the playoffs because he's Carmelo and has the reputation, and that'll please Chris Paul. But when it comes down to it, if you asked, I pre I'm pretty sure if you kind of pressured D'Antoni in a Warrior series, you know, who would you rather play more, you know, P.J. Tucker or Carmelo Anthony or James Ennis? And Carmelo Anthony, you want to pick James Ennis for what he can provide on the defensive end for that matter. So 
I don't know. I think ultimately they'll still be a top three seed. I think they honestly still could be the second seed in the West. I think they have one of the best backcourts in the league, obviously, and they have other pieces that fit, and they have a style of play that will rack up a lot of wins. I just don't think ultimately, come playoff time, come a series against the Warriors, um, their defense just, I don't think their defense will be good enough in the playoffs without Ariza, Mabamute, and Bizdelic while also adding Melo. Um, and like I said, I don't think any of their new additions like Knight and Chris will play meaningful minutes in the playoffs. Um, and so ultimately, I mean, you know, turning over the attention to the over-under, I'm going over. Um, it's 56. Um, they won 65 last year. They had more of a, I think they had a point differential of a 62-win team. Um, I think, you know, I think they have too much talent and the right system to win in the regular season a lot, especially when I don't think teams will be game planning for them as much as they will obviously in the playoffs. Like teams are not going to game plan specifically only for Melo or how to attack certain players, certain weaknesses on the Rockets roster in the regular season. Uh, and then the other aspect is that they tend to overplay their guys in the regular season, um, which is a fault of theirs, obviously, come playoff time. But in the regular season, in terms of over-under, I think they win around 58 games, and I'm going to go on the over. I'm also taking the over. I think just having the strength of Chris Paul and James Harden, and obviously I have to do the obligatory acapella joke, but um, <laughs> Clint Capella banking on some improvement from him, some additional development. I'm going to put him at like 59. I do think the loss of reason by Mute are, are not only bigger in the short I mean in the long term playoff spot. I think it's gonna cost them a couple wins as they adjust with James Dennis and Carmelo and you know what kinda of happens around there. But they're gonna obviously be a strong team. I think the over under is much too low for them for a team that finished as high as they did in, in the West and are are clearly a, a tier below the Warriors but also a tier above every other team until they prove themselves in my opinion. So definitely taking over. All right, let's move on to the third team in the Southwest, the Memphis Grizzlies. In the offseason, a pretty eventful offseason for the Grizzlies. They obviously drafted one of my favorite player in the draft, uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. Um, then in free agency, they signed Kyle Anderson, Shelvin Mack, and Omri Caspi. And then they ended up trading for Garrett Temple. Um, so pretty eventful offseason for the Grizzlies, who ownership has pretty much said that they kind of want to go back to playoff contention and expect to do that this season. We'll, we'll talk about if that's actually going to be realistic. But last, <laughs> I mean, last yeah. season, it was, it was just abysmal. They were 27th on offense and 24th on defense. And that leads to the first storyline of, of just how important health is for this team. And obviously, it starts at Mike Conley, who played only 12 games last season. Um, I, I think Conley is still, when healthy, one of the most underrated players in the league. In 2016-17, he averaged 20.5 points, 6.3 assists, and shot over 40% on threes. Um, and he provided his usual solid defense. And then you look at the impact that he had on the team, and he had a plus 10.2 net rating that season because the offense was 8.8 points per 100 possessions better when he was on the floor. Um, that's how good he was, at least offensively, for them in 16-17. If he can get close to that level of play or even replicate it, he's not that much older, um, and he can stay healthy, um, They obviously that's obviously crucial. I think that if he misses more than 10 to 15 games this season, they have no chance at the playoffs. I don't pick them to make the playoffs if he stays healthy as well, uh, or either, I should say. Uh, but he has to stay healthy, and he has to provide that kind of value to make up for what is a, a, a good but still somewhat limited roster, especially with Marcus Gasol continuing to decline. Um, and then my next big storyline for this team is how the new pieces are integrated, because I mentioned they have a couple of players that are going to fit in and, and have key roles. Obviously, Jaron Jackson Jr., you know, the question is, does he start a power forward, or is he the backup center to start the season and, and just 
play both positions in the front court. Um, you know, the other question is how much can he provide offensively in his rookie season? Obviously, he showed a, a pretty sweet-looking jump shot behind the arc in summer league, but will that translate to the actual NBA? I think that his defense will, will be solid right off the bat. Um, he's obviously just so – he has so many defensive tools um, and, and good defensive awareness, and he projects to be – you know, at that defensive player of the year level impact at the center position, he can switch, he can defend the rim, um, the lateral movement, um, just the awareness and, and, you know, basketball IQ. Um, I, I just, I can't talk enough about how good he can be defensively. The question is obviously offensively with that jump shot and his, you know, somewhat limited, you know, moves, scoring moves in the post um, right off the bat. Kyle Anderson projects to be the starting small forward, but, you know, given how his limited shooting and his, his unique ability to actually handle the ball and create for others, how do they really use him in the offense? Um, I wrote an article for Grizzly Bear Blues on SB Nation, I think it was like a month or two ago, um, about you know Mike Conley being able to play more off-ball with Kyle Anderson in the starting lineup because Kyle Anderson can handle the ball and bring it up and initiate the offense, and that can, with Marcus Gasol um, also gravitating, you know, getting attention around him, that can open up Mike Conley for some more catch-and-shoot looks from beyond the arc. Obviously, you... As I said, 40% from threes. Um, two seasons ago, he's an elite shooter. That could open up a little bit more possibilities with their offense. And Garrett Temple's the same way. Uh, maybe he starts at shooting guard. Maybe he comes off the bench. But he's another ball handler and good shooter on offense. And then that solid defense, that 3 and D wing type of mold, is the perfect fit for the Grizzlies, who have been pretty public about returning to their grit and grind style of play. So... They were pretty successful, I think, in doing that and getting players that fit the way they want to play. Now it's all about integrating them in the right manner and staying healthy to have any chance at the playoffs. Yeah, I'm giving them no chance to get to the playoffs. I'm just throwing that out there right now because I'm, I'm with you on that. They definitely wanted to go back to the glory days as far as play style. But I think, if nothing else, when David Fisdale tried to change that culture and change that style, he unlocked more offensive potential for Conley. He was able to kind of – it would have helped – or continue to help Marcus Gasol as he continues to decline. And I think the word for me with Memphis is a storyline is decline. I think that there's potential for a lot of that. Um, Chandler Parsons, if not 30, will be 30 soon. Mike Conley will be 31 just before the season starts with um, a plethora of injury, hist- plethora of injury history. Marcus Gasol will be 34 during the season and has already been declining. I think those two are your leaders. Those two are your, your main players. Jaron Jackson will learn a lot, but you – it would not be wise to throw him out there with playoff aspirations and make him your main guy off the top unless he has like a Donovan Mitchell-type impact um, for the Grizzlies, and I'm banking that that will not happen. I like the Kyle Anderson signing and Garrett Temple, but these players are, are, are players that they're going to be scrappy defensive. They're going to be scrappy in the defensive end, and, and they're going to grit, and they're going to you know get in there and, and dive and be that kind of team, but I, I really don't see a lot of offensive creation, and I think that especially – you know, certain games are going to work, but in te- games against, like, the elite-level teams, the Warriors, the Rockets, um, I'm going to throw the Lakers out there. They're just going to outscore you. I mean, they're good. They're a good defensive team, if not a great one. Garrett Temple's a good defender. Um, I like Jamon Carter, um, drafted 32nd in this draft, as a defensive signing. Um, Jaron Jackson's great. Kyle Anderson played really well in the defensive system in San Antonio. I think that he has some attributes that are carry well. They definitely have some versatility, especially at 3 and 4 with Parsons, Omri Caspi, who will bring some shooting. Um, Dylan Brooks, who actually had a pretty good rookie year last year, there, there's so, it's it's some nice players, a nice skill set, but I, I don't know. It's like it's like they're trying to go back to the glory days of like grit and grind, but missing several key elements. Like there was a Zach Randolph with a Marcus Saul. There was a Marcus Saul who was actually in his prime. There was a Mike Conley who played a bit more, and they were able to conjure up enough offense. And I think they'll have enough here, but they don't have the defensive just 
greatness that they had then, in my own opinion, to make them what they were. Like, they're going back to, like, a grit and grind light with with the same type of team that's just a little bit older, a little bit more injury concerns. Marcus all definitely threw me off from a team leader perspective and just how quickly he was turning when the stuff went rough, you know, early last season and the whole flame out with Fizdale and everything. It's just a team that, I don't know. I think to say they're going to have a chance to make the playoffs, like we talked about Dallas, I give Dallas more of a chance than I give Memphis. That's an interesting discussion. Um, I, that is really it's fascinating which team has a better chance of making the playoffs. Uh, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think this team has solid depth at most positions. Um, you just run through their depth chart. You know, you've got Conley, and then off the bench, you can have Shelvin Macker, Andrew Harrison run the point. Uh, shooting guard, the, you can have Dylan Brooks, Garrett Temple, maybe even Marshawn Brooks and Wayne Selden can contribute for some more offensive-oriented and to some shooting to, to space the floor a little bit more. Small forward, obviously, Kyle Anderson can start. Chandler Parsons can play there a little bit. Caspi can play there. At power forward, you've got, you know, Jaron Jackson Jr., Jermichael Green. You can slide Parsons or Anderson or even Caspi to the power forward position and maybe slide Jackson um, down to center because they don't really have a backup center behind Gasol. They have solid depth. They've got, I mean, the shooting can be a question mark if, if Jaron Jackson and Jermichael Green can't really space the floor at power forward um, because, the, you know, Anderson's a complete non-shooter and Dylan Brooks was solid but, you know, not a knockdown dead-eye shooter. Um, the shooting can be a question mark. They were, you know, they were 21st in three-pointers attempted per game last year or at least three-pointer frequency of, of a three-pointers attempted according to cleaning the glass. I'm not sure if that's going to increase. Obviously, that would be nice to space the floor a little bit more around Gasol and Conley. Um, but really, it starts, like you said, you know, grit and grind light because their star players, the two most important players, are probably declining and have injury concerns. And again, if one of them goes down for a significant time, they're, yes. doomed. they're doomed. Um, and I think that, you know, it's easy to say, oh, they should have just traded, um, you know, Gasol and Conley. I'm, I'm not sure what if there is a trade market for Mike Conley with that contract. And Marcus Gasol has a player option for next year. Again, with his decline and, like you said, the leadership issues that happened last year, I really don't know if there is even a trade market for him at this point. So while it's easy for us to say that they should have started a rebuild this summer, we don't know if that actually could have happened or is even possible given the trade market for their two stars or if they're just locked in to whatever this team is, which projects to be a a low to mid-30s win team this season. I think if they stay healthy, and even worse, if they, if they don't stay healthy. And that's what's frustrating, because in Conley and Gasol, these players are ready to win now. They're not going to be the same two, three years down the line. I mean, it's not going to happen. That means a lot of pressure. You know, it's not only on Conley and Gasol to stay healthy, but to even make a push for the playoffs, it really depends on what the surrounding players do. Um, I've been mentioning Chandler Parks is only 29, but since he signed with Memphis, only played in 70 games, and his numbers have just taken lows all across the board. So that's a lot of pressure on Jaron Jackson. Um, he's going to have the opportunity, but he's really going to have to grow and kind of grow quickly if they're going to go where they want to as far as getting the playoffs. And I just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. That's all. I think they fall between 10th and 12th in the West. Um, uh, apparently they still want to keep grit and grind, which is great. They, they have the chance to transition as far as bringing Conley and Gasol, you know, passing it off to Jaron, to Jackson Jr. Add another young player, kind of build from there. But, I doubt that they will, and and just by you by, by you saying, and you're more on the pulse than I am on the Grizzlies as far as competing for a playoff spot, which I guess you would do if you had Conley and Gasol, but like, I, I don't know, it, it's it's a whole lot of nothing in my opinion. They have solid depth, but for example, we're talking when you mentioned the point guard spot, I, I saw enough of uh, Mr. Harrison to know how he plays, and we're talking about Orlando Magic, uh, careers or season assist leader Shelvin Mack. <laughs> 
I just wanted to make sure, like, like the depth here in some places is is adequate. But like, for example, if Conley goes down, then the depth could just give a flying hoo ha because I do not feel comfortable running the Grizzlies' offense with Mac or Harrison at the helm. You know, if Parsons is injured, then a lot more pressure goes on on um, Omri Caspi and Jamichael Green and. And and Jaron Jackson Jr. Same if Gasol goes down, then you have the patchwork over there. Like there's there's solid pieces, but for a playoff spot, I, I don't know. They, they're like solid, um, competent NBA players. Yeah, that, that's outside of like Kyle Anderson, outside of some youthful guys who I could see. Okay, and other teams would be good, but competent in this Western Conference. I mean, in the East, it'd be tough with this roster without Conley or Gasol, I mentioned, not with those two. But in the East, it'd be tough, much less in the West where we say, okay, they have competent NBA depth, but let's say if Gasol or Conley are out, say, 20 games, and come on, that could happen. There's probably a high probability that one of those players will be injured for that length of time this season. Then then what? You know what I mean? It's like you, you put enough players that can play the position and not be you know, the the um, equivalent of the 2016-2017 Oklahoma City backcourt where it was just, just a black hole there. But at the same time, do you really have trust in those players? You know, from a from a we're going to go for the playoffs position. Oh, no. I, well, I will say this. Yeah. I, I like uh-huh. enough of their players on their roster, and I like their roster enough um, to predict that if they stayed healthy, I think they would make the, the playoffs in the East. Um, I think that they could, they would squeeze yeah, in, okay. honestly, um, if a lot of their opponents would be in the weaker Eastern Conference. And I think that they have enough, if Conley is healthy and Gasol is healthy and more engaged, which he will be after last season's debacle, um, I liked what they did in terms of adding Jaron Jackson and adding Kyle Anderson and adding Garrett Temple. Those three additions project to fit in very well around, around Conley and Gasol. Um, and then alongside guys like Dylan Brooks, um, Mac Harrison, et cetera, whoever wants to chip in here and there, I would like that roster enough in the Eastern Conference. It's just that you come down to the Western Conference um, and the teams that miss out in the playoffs last year, like the Nuggets and Lakers improving and other teams basically staying the same or strengthening their position as a playoff team, and you just get to this point where it doesn't seem like it's going to be enough. Um, turning to the over-under, and I would say, like, I really like that they – landed Jaron Jackson Jr. Like, if he turns out to be what I think and a lot of people think he will be, like defensive player of the year type level defense and solid offense, um, I think he could be the best player in this draft class. Um, I feel like maybe the way the NBA is moving, I think Doncic as a wing is more of a dynamic and useful player than a, than a big like Jaron Jackson. But he's a big that can switch, can hit the three, can defend the rim. He's just so versatile. So I think he could be a, the second best player in this draft class for sure. Um, in which case... That's huge for their future. It's all about them if they can build around him moving forward and what the impact of trying to go for the playoffs now does versus their future and if their ability to add young players to Jaron Jackson. But for this season alone, their over-under is 33. Whew, that's tough, honestly. That's really tough. I, I think, man, I'm going to go... I'm going to go with the over, I think, but barely. Like, I really think that they get, like, 34 wins. Like, I think, like, I'm, they literally barely get this. I think if they stay healthy... And maybe they get a break or two here and there. Maybe there's an injury to a team above them or something like that. I think if everything goes right for them in terms of health and a couple of breaks and Jaron Jackson develops faster than usual and Kyle Anderson fits in better and maybe there's more modern lineups and, and schemes used by J.B. Bickerstaff now that he's the full head coach and not just coaching on an interim basis, they could probably win upwards of like 37 to 38. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think they win 34 to 35 games max because the West is too tough. They're going to have a couple of injuries. They're going to rely on a young guy in Jaron Jackson. They've got limited shooting overall on their roster. So I'm going to go with 34 wins for them. 
You know, it's funny. I was going to take the over until you mentioned uh, J.B. Bickerstaff and his great coaching prowess. <laughs> and just for that, I'm taking the under at 32. I just That's another factor I did not take in. I do not think he's anything more than a placeholder coach. The fact that they signed him for the extension that they did, in my opinion, is just Without, without even interviewing that, other candidates, by the way. Exa- exactly. I think they did it because of money. And he yeah. was cheaper. And that's... My position, I'm sure other people agree with him. I mean, has he shown anything? No. I mean, I'm just saying. No. Jamie Bick, no, he's not shown anything from his Houston stint to what he's done here in Memphis to, to show that he deserves to be the head coach moving forward. I wouldn't coach him in my – I'm not even going to go bring you know mm-hmm. analogies here. The point is, just off of that alone, no. I think an injury to Conley or Gasol cripples the team. If it's to Gasol, then it's going to be a lot more for Conley to handle, and that will wear him down. If it's on Conley, then I think Gasol will go into another funk of his – which is just depressing to think about. I do not think that J.B. Bickerstaff has the prerequisite chops to really coach a team through severe adversity. We kind of saw what that was last year, and they were worse than they were with, with uh, Fizdo already in that slump. So I don't see that happening. I'm, I'm going to take the under 32. I think that there's a chance that they can go over that, obviously, but I'm not too high on it. All right, let's move on to one of the more one of my most intriguing teams of the upcoming season, the New Orleans Pelicans. Oh, well, let's see. In the offseason, obviously the big offseason move were losing DeMarcus Cousins and Rajon Rondo and pretty much just swapping them with Alfred Payton and Julius Randle. Last season they were for the overall season they were 11th on offense and defense, but after the Cousins injury, which is the end of January, they were actually the 17th offense but the 5th ranked defense. Obviously they traded for Nikola Mirotic at that time. Um, so the storyline, I think that <clears throat> the main storyline is basically looking at their offseason and projecting it to the season and, and is can Alfred Payton, Julius Randle replace Rondo and Cousins? I think it's kind of the defining question of their offseason and the upcoming season for that matter. Um, and overall, I think that in the regular season, I don't think the drop-off or the potential drop-off from Rondo to Payton will be felt that much. Um, Rondo's a flawed player. I think that the, there's a reason why the narrative of playoff Rondo kind of started because he wasn't giving effort in the regular season and he would actually start trying in the playoffs and you'd be like, wow, he's actually still a decent player, a pretty good player. Um, in the regular season, I think that Peyton, the d- difference between Rondo and Peyton won't be felt as much as people are talking about. All right, so brief technical difficulty there, but back to talking about this intriguing fit of Alfred Peyton and Julius Randle with the Pelicans. You know, I think that Randle... I think that both have a place on this team, and, and this is honestly such an ideal situation for both players. Obviously, Peyton, you know, he didn't work out in Orlando, went to Phoenix, was bad, but they were tanking. Randall showed a lot last season, um, and in terms of a team that plays a style of play that like he wants to play, in terms of running and transition, maybe exploring his playmaking abilities more, the Pelicans do just that. So, you know, with his ability to handle the ball, with his ability to take the rebound, run in transition, find a shooter, find a cutter, when he wants to bruise in the paint, uh, maybe when Anthony Davis wants to stay a little bit away from that physicality over the course of an 82-game season, Alfred Payton's always been at his best in transition, and Alvin, Alvin Gentry wants his team running. Obviously, they played at the league's fastest pace last season um, and were just so explosive in the playoffs, just catching the Blazers off guard. Um, seemingly every possession, they get a rebound, find a shooter really quickly, um, get a turnover, find a shooter, find a cutter. Um, they couldn't stop Anthony Davis at center. So, you know, for that reason, I'm pretty high on Alfred Payton and Julius Randle just coming in and being inserted for Rondo and Cousins, especially when you consider the fact that Rondo probably would have declined a little bit more and his effort would have waned over the course of a regular season. Maybe Payton will be more engaged as giving as the Pelicans are giving him a real shot to kind of stay in the NBA for that matter or at least earn a contract next summer. And, you know, with Cousins probably missing the first couple months of the season, just having Randall, a player that fits so well in the front court for this team and this style of play, just having him available to do that 
um, will be a big boost for them to start the season over, over the first couple months compared to having an injured Cousins still on the roster. For that reason, I'm pretty high on Peyton and Randall coming in and, and playing pretty well and fitting pretty well alongside AD and Drew Holiday and Miritich in this uh, Pelicans kind of running gun style of play. Okay, so we can say what we want about, you know, Peyton and Rondo kind of wearing down during the season as far as, you know, just being into it mentally and everything. But Alfred Payton does not hold a candle to playoff Rondo. I just want to put that out there <laughs> on the record. Just let that be noted. But um, <laughs> to go back to uh, Randall and Payton, I'm actually with you. I think it's going to be an interesting fit and is a chance for both of them to shine. Um, just talk about Julius Randle ex- um, exclusively right here. The dude averaged 16.1 points per game, 8 rebounds, and 2.6 assists. And he did this while shooting 55% from the field and playing just 26 minutes a night for LA last year. Um, he's just a dynamic big man. He's not going to fill the hole that Cousins left, but I don't think he's going to be expected to because he's a different player. He can definitely bang, but for the most part, he gets out in transition and just gets after it. Um, he scored 1.11 points per possession last season, which is more than players like Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Russell Westbrook, the OK3, um, <laughs> among others. And he's just real quick with his feet, has a really good handle for someone his size, and he runs with, like, not only is he fast, but he also has that, like, rumbleness to him. Like, you don't really want to get in the way of him when he's kind of rumbling down the lane. Mm-hmm. Um, last season, New Orleans um, points in transition ranked them 20th. I think they were uh, 1. 1.7 points per possession um, in transition. But when they had Cousins out and had, you know um, – Anthony Davis and, uh, and, and Nikola Mirotic in there, they did go a little bit faster. And I think by subbing some more and having um, Randall join Davis and Holiday, as well as Elver Payton, who is, is a pass-first point guard, they're, they're going to be ready to, to go. You better be ready to go if you're, if you're playing the Pelicans. Um, Payton in particular, I'm not super high on. I mean, he's good. He's worked from three, and he finally got a haircut, which usually <laughs> I would never say about another player. But I think this really comes into play with Elver Payton only because – that floppy hair literally blocked a shot on its own several times, which, oh, gosh. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that, yeah, that what you said about their style of play is, is significant because, you know, they play at a very fast pace, and they can kind of, and they did it last season after Boogie, they can kind of do it this season again, is kind of unlocking Anthony Davis at center with shooters and ball handlers around him and just getting out in transition um, and kind of catching teams off guard, especially on a night-to-night or game-to-game basis in the regular season, and that's going to bode well for them. I mean, last season, the Miritich and Anthony Davis front court had a positive 10.2 net rating, which is incredible. And then you look at their playoff starting lineup that also started some games in the second half of the season as well, which was uh, Rondo, Drew, each one more, Miritich and AD. That had a plus 19.4 net rating. <laughs> a plus 19.4. Oh. I mean, it was a small sample size of only 443 possessions. Um, but that, that lineup, again, speaks to unlocking Anthony Davis at center, unlocking Drew Holiday by playing him at the two a little bit more. Um, you know, obviously he turned into a defensive monster last season, especially in the playoffs. Um, having shooters around Anthony Davis is huge. Um, and so it also turns to the question of what is the rotation for this team is because I think that the, I think that Alfred Payton will start at point guard and definitely have a, a chance to earn that starting point guard spot. And they want to keep Holiday at, at the two for at least for good periods of every game. Um, and then the front court rotation is interesting because I think Miritich and AD should start um, because obviously, like I said, plus 10.2 net rating kind of makes sense as a seamless fit compared to Randall who kind of clogs up the spacing, uh, especially if you're starting Peyton. I think if you start Peyton um, and Drew, who kind of, I think he only shot 33% from three and is not exactly a knockdown shooter. He can shoot it, but he's not like 
really going to space the floor that much. If you mm-hmm. start Peyton and Andrew in the backcourt, you have to start Miritich at the four compared to Randall because then you'd have too many non-shooters, and that would just cramp this, the floor for AD, cramp it for Drew, um, and you know muck the offense up for that matter. I think you, you start Miritich and AD, and then you stagger them with Randall to create so many different combinations. Randall and Miritich, which is extremely intriguing. Randall and AD, that AD is. and Miritich. There's just so many ways you can use those three and fill up the front court minutes with those three and maybe Solomon Hill contributing some minutes at the four as well. Um, and then this turns to, you know, how do they cover up the lack of quality wings they have on their roster? And it really starts with playing Drew at the two and Moore at small forward, which is what they did. Even though Etuan Moore is undersized as a small forward and guarding opposing wings, he, he's, you know... He, he tries, he gives effort, and he has some kind of ability to hang a little bit. Um, and then off the bench, Darius Miller, Solomon Hill. Again, it's huge that Hill is healthy and can actually give him something. Um, you know, because he's, he's an offensive liability, but he's the best wing defender they have on the roster, um, unless you're counting Drew Holiday, but he's a little bit too undersized. Um, maybe some Ian Clark gets in there a little bit. Maybe they do go do some big lineups with Miritich at small forward. Um, and that's that's a, that's one way to do Miritich, Randall, and AD on the court at the same time. I wouldn't want to see that that much, um, but in certain matchups, I think you can, you can go big in that way and still have enough shooting on the floor and still not be terrible defensively. Because um, Miritich is, is a solid under the radar kind of well, underrated defender, I should say, for that matter. He actually tries and kind of has some good defensive instincts. So the question with this rotation is. Who is Peyton starting at point guard? How does that affect who starts alongside AD? And then what do they do with their wing situation and moving forward throughout the season? Because in the NBA, in the playoffs, you need elite wings that can kind of be decent defensively and provide enough of a, of a three-point shot, really. Oh, yeah, and I kind of wish that the Pelicans had went after James Ennis again or, or another mm-hmm. wing that could have been serviceable because I think that would have been a huge help for them. Um, the way they did it, I, I guess it, it's okay. I was just looking at some numbers in Alfred Payton. I did not realize that he's basically the last four seasons he's been in the NBA has averaged at least uh, 6.4 assists. And this has been on some teams in Orlando that have just been really bad or Phoenix with Devin Booker out that were not only, you know, mid middle of the pack as far as Temple was concerned, but also were just below average offensive clubs. And he also, and I didn't know this was Orlando or is, or is Orlando's all-time franchise leader in career triple doubles, which means absolutely nothing when <laughs> taking him out to his impact onto the Pelicans. But I thought it was interesting to point out. Um, ultimately, yeah, there is some lineup combinations here. I think Alvin Gentry is the coach that you can trust to unlock what will work. Whether that is, as you said, Miritich and Davis, Davis and Randall, not doubtful. Davis and Miritich, which is interesting. You know, how we're going to plug that in. Um, will Drew Holiday play small forward in select lineups? You know, will he slot the two? Etwan Moore there. You do have Darius Miller. You know, you have some interesting players who are limited in certain things they can do, but can be patched up into a, a, a decent roster. I think they just signed Jared Jack. I'm not really sure what the thinking was behind there, mm-hmm. except for probably additional depth at point guard, possibly, but... The point being, I do trust um, Alvin Gentry to figure it out. I kind of wish that DeMarcus had gone back. I do think it was an interesting feel, and I wasn't as down on their combination as others were, especially once Miritich came to the picture, and understandably and admittedly played very well with Davis. But I really did think that Cousins and Davis could have had more time to really mesh better. And word is out that they did offer him a two-year $40 million deal, which I guess I get why he turned down, but I just wish I wish it had worked out. However, you know they rebounded the best possible way by bringing in um, um, bringing in uh, Randall and um, Peyton, and also with Randall being with the contract they have him on, it's a great way for him to play himself in another extension or mutually, you know, part ways after this year is done. 
So, um, well, not extension, but re-signing. There we go. Anyway, either way, I, I definitely think it's interesting, and this team is going to be one to look look to look at coming up. I don't know if I put them on the lead pass team, um, but it's definitely going to be great to see them. And if they find an additional wing that's kind of mostly three exclusive that can kind of swing up and down, where they do have to do a trade or someone just pops up, I don't know. I think it'll be even better for them because it's going to be interesting seeing how they kind of slot that up against the better of the teams. I don't think you can put Drew Holiday on um, Kevin Durant like they did in last year's playoffs and expect that to work out too well. Yeah, and that was one thing I had on my notes is a midseason trade coming because they have been pretty aggressive in recent seasons in terms of using their draft pick. Uh, their first-round pick to acquire talent. And this is really a big year for them. They have to convince Anthony Davis that they can have sustained playoff success um, before he kind of potentially either, you know, requests a trade or doesn't want to sign that Supermax extension. And, you know, a player of Anthony Davis's caliber, he needs to be making deep playoff runs every year moving forward. And one way to do that, or the best way to do that for this team, how it's set up, is to acquire a wing during the season. Um, and someone like Trevor Reza, I think, it would be so awesome for them. Um, obviously, you know, the Suns gave him $15 million out of their price range. But like you said, maybe going after James Ennis would have been a good idea. They may, maybe they can trade. Maybe Ariza becomes available in a trade, and they can trade for Trevor Ariza or something like that, or trade for a wing of that level that provides somewhat of a, of a three-point shot to keep defenders honest offensively. And then it obviously provides you some some plus defense to go alongside maybe Solomon Hill. Uh, obviously, Anthony Davis, Drew Holiday can be a lockdown defender on the, on the perimeter. So I think that there could be very likely a trade coming for a wing, especially if they... They feel like they have a chance to really make a deep playoff run. Um, and I will say this. I have them on my league pass rankings. They are they are probably in the top five for my league pass rankings because you combine Anthony Davis, who makes them who makes any team really must-watch, with their style of play of playing at a fast pace and just jacking up shots, um, with J- Julius Randle. When obviously, both of us love Julius Randle, as we've talked about so many times on this pod before. Um, Meritich jacking up threes. Drew Holiday playing lockdown defense and becoming, becoming more of a focal point offensively in terms of finding his own shot. You combine all that together, and that makes for a very, very fun team, and I think a successful one in the regular season, which is why for their over-under, which is 46, I'm hitting that over, um, and I'm going all in on this team. I think that their style of play, at least for the regular season, I think their style of play um, and the amount of talent they have will will lead to some really good regular season success. I think they're going to win 49 games this year. Whoa. You know that's right there under the fifty wins. You do realize that, right? <laughs> I can't wow. go. I can't go that far. Fifty wins is a, is a whole other barrier. Even though it's only one win, it just feels I was so about different. To say, it feels so yeah, it's the upper echelon there. Um, you know, I'm with you. In fact, I kind of feel bad that I even said they're going to be a league pass team because, of course, they will. I'm gonna have to watch them just just because not only am I still on Randall Island, but this team is going to be interesting. And I'm I'm really a believer in Alfin Gentry as a coach and getting the most out of his players, or you know, not in the in the aspect of a Rick Carlisle or Greg Popovich. Spoiler, spoiler, but in the sense that, you know, he'll, he'll try to put them in best ways to get the most out of them. So you're right. They will be in the league pass team, and I'm going to take the over as well. I'm going to put them at a f- – well, I'm not actually going to put a number. I was going to say 47. Um, I just kind of say comfortably under you, but um, I'm definitely going to take the over. I think that they're, they're, they're a team that's intriguing, and whether or not Randall and Peyton and Miritich replace – um, Davis and uh, Cousins or, or not, you know, just out and out to make them a better team is besides the point. There's still going to be a team that's going to contend for a playoff spot and especially in Minnesota, in both of our opinion, not taking that uh, not reclaiming that hold on the we- on the Western Conference uh, playoff one of those positions. I definitely see New Orleans taking one of them and, and holding on to that. 
Yeah, I definitely have the Pelicans in the playoffs, um, and I'm not sure. I haven't really worked out what the seeding will work like, but I think, I mean, I'm picking 49 wins. That's going to be enough for the playoffs, even even in the tough Western Conference. I just think the style of play that they have, the people they, they fit, uh, the people they add in the in the, in the offseason, I think, fit pretty well. If they can add another wing and a Solomon Hill can give them decent minutes this year, I think they've got enough talent and the right style of play to get a pretty good seed in the playoffs, and then... You know, who knows if they can blitz an opponent like they did with the Blazers last year, but they can be pretty successful. I think they can still win a first-round series um, if they stay healthy and, and, you know, find the right matchup, which last year against the Blazers was obviously the right matchup for them um, moving forward. So, yeah, all right, let's move on in just a moment to the San Antonio Spurs. All right, we're back to wrap up with the San Antonio Spurs last team in the Southwest Division. Offseason was obviously very eventful. Um, they traded Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green to the Raptors for DeMar DeRozan and Jakob Poto in a first-round pick. And then they signed uh, Marco Bellinelli, Dante Cunningham, Quincy Pondexter in free agency. And they drafted Lonnie Walker. Uh, and they lost Manu Ginobili to retirement and Tony Parker to the Hornets. And with that, the big three of Parker, Ginobili, and Tim Duncan are gone. And I guess you call it the big four, including Kawhi, is also gone. Um, so a lot of changes in San Antonio. Um, last season, they were the 17th offense and the fourth defense, which is just amazing when you consider they didn't have Kawhi Leonard for all but, I think, nine games last year. To have the fourth defense is really just incredible. Um, so some storylines. <clears throat> The Kawhi mess is finally behind them. So what? how do they move forward now with DeRozan and Aldridge as their two best players and the two leaders of this offense? My first instinct when talking about the Spurs offense is asking them if they know what a three-pointer is um, because 27th, <laughs> 27th in attempts a game last year, uh, which is they averaged 20, they attempted 24.1 threes per game last year. That may actually go down this year. I, I'm, I mean – it's incredible. I mean, you lose Kawhi and Green, who obviously are good shooters, to DeRozan, um, and Poto is not going to shoot threes, and DeRozan's not going to be really shooting that many threes, though he started taking some last year a little bit more and did okay with it. Um, the really, the, the real, the serious question about that is how does the limited floor spacing kind of impact their offense and, and really how defend, defenses guard them, especially guys when they're, you know, DeRozan loves the mid-range, Aldridge loves the mid-range, um, it's going to be interesting to, to see how those two mesh offensively, and I think that's where Patty Mills, Bellinelli, Davis Berton all factor into the rotation because, you know, while they're all limited defenders and honestly pretty much liabilities on that end of the floor, it's going to be, it's going to be important that they at least get some kind of playing time, especially guys like Bellinelli and Mills, to just space the floor. I think ultimately it'll be hard to play them against the best opponents, kind of like when we talked about Carmelo Anthony with the Rockets, um, just because of the defensive liability that all those players are. But in the regular season and in certain matchups, you're going to need to play them just for their shooting straight up. And that leads to the second question is, can their defense remain elite, especially if they're playing guys like that and you know inserting DeRozan in for Leonard and Danny Green? Because... You lose two defenders like Kawhi and Green, who you know weren't obviously at their best last season, and you replace them with their two big replacements are going to be DeRozan and Bellinelli. I mean, that is a cause for major concern. So let me just let me just roll through some defensive stats for DeRozan and how he's impacted his team's defense over the past couple of years. <clears throat> oh. In 2015-16, the Raptors' defense was 5.6 points per 100 possessions worse with DeRozan on the floor. 2016-17, that same Raptors defense, 8.3 points per 100 possessions worse with DeRozan on the floor. Last season, the Raptors defense, 7.5 points per 100 possessions worse with DeRozan on the floor. That is how bad he's been defensively, at least impacting his team's defense. 
in the past three seasons. And then you look at Marco Bellinelli, who on that same metric has not been a positive defensive player in terms of improving his team defense since 2009 to 2010 season. You add those two really, really bad defenders in the place of Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green, even though they didn't have Kawhi last year, at least in Danny Green's case, you, the question has to be asked is, can their defense remain elite? Last year, they had a, a mediocre offense and a really, really good defense. Will their offense be able to improve with the limited shooting? And will their defense be able to withstand the additions of DeRozan and Bellinelli in place of Kawhi and Green? Those are two huge questions that need to be asked for the Spurs, the Spurs team this season. Oh, yeah, defensively is going to be interesting. I don't really even know what to tell you on that end because numbers don't lie in this case. Um, and DeRozan is a defender. I, I didn't know it was that bad, but obviously he's not a lockdown guy. He's definitely no Kawhi Leonard from there. Um, it's going to be interesting to see San Antonio. They're, they're an intriguing team, more so than most that we've talked about so far. Not only because the big three is over, but this is a whole new San Antonio team for many of us, our entire basketball following lives. It's usually just been... You know, Tony Parker, Mount Ginobili, Tim Duncan, and a revolving door of intriguing prospects and veteran role players and um, castaways from other teams. So the fact that all of them are gone for the first time, I think, in 18 years, I think they had Tim Duncan since 98 to what, 20 or 97 in 2014. And then I think Manu came in 2001 and Tony came in 2003, around there. They all came like the last 18, 18 years. All of them are gone. That's the first. And two, this team has now switched to being primarily built around LaMarcus Aldridge and DeMar DeRozan, two guys who you said are, are just headliners of the we-don't-know-what-a-three-point shot is, but <laughs> also they're, they're, they're kings of the mid-range for whatever that's worth in 2018. So um, that's interesting. And what's funny about this is I think the five-man, it, it was a stat I just had pulled up, basically um, how having Rudy Gay, um, Patty Mills, or not Rudy Gay, Patty Mills, Rudy Gay, DeMar DeRozan, um, DeMar, um, oh, yeah, Rudy Gay, um, DeMar DeRozan, LaMarcus Aldridge, Paul Gasol, and then, um, oh, Mr. De, De, um, Mr. Murray <laughs> have combined for 205 made threes. DeJounte Murray combined for 205 <laughs> made threes last year, which is lower than several. I mean, you can name like four or five players who have made more threes by themselves than those five did as a unit. And the spacing will be interesting. I think um, Murray took only 52 shots. And this is just off of memory. I looked this up a couple days ago. I'm trying to remember. I think he only took 52 shots outside of the paint last year. Um, the majority of those being mid-range. And you saw in the playoffs against the, the Warriors how they just completely left him alone to double Aldridge. I mean, he didn't even have to make a pull-up three-pointer. He just had to make a three-pointer. And I think the one game that they won, I think that was game four, um, he did make some several big shots from the corners and up top that the Warriors just totally neglected to stick him. And even when he started making them, he said, okay, we'll live with those shots. So it was imperative that he worked on that jump shot. I think this year that he did. Um, I still don't think he's going to be, you know, um, Kyle Lowry out there. But any spacing out there will help, especially where, you know, your two best players and the ones who are going to take the majority of their shots, oh, and also Rudy Gay, are going to be in that mid-post to free throw line area. That, that's kind of where they thrive. So it's going to be interesting. I think bringing him back in Marco Bellinelli was not a problem for me. Bringing him back on the contract that they did was a problem for me. <laughs> um, having having Paul Gasol still there because they decided to, you know, redo his contract and, you know, surprisingly, I guess, give him some good loyalty but just increase it was interesting. Um, bringing Dante Cunningham in and Quincy Pondexter with some depth was, was nice. I like the pick of Lonnie Walker. Just kind of running through everything here. They have interesting pieces, but – it's, it's going to be an interesting team because I could see them, 
you know, if Pop comes back and, you know, he's had a personally, and I really don't really want to delve into it too much, but he's had a personal rough year, just, you know, professionally with all that went on with Kawhi and everything, and then personally with his own, you know, the, fa- the family stuff that's been going on there. But there's going to be, if he comes back rejuvenated with this team that, that has a lot to prove, I mean, DeMar DeRozan is coming in with the biggest chip on his shoulder this season. And, and they have some players here that want to prove something, that are going to get more of a role. DeJounte Murray is going to know that, you know, there's nowhere else to give the ball to after him like it's not like last year where you know if he did wrong we always got tony off the bench that we can roll back in that can you know bring us back to uh the corporate knowledge that the spurs know that's not there anymore i mean only person who even still has that would be paul gasol from what he's seen and marco bellinelli from back when he was there in 2040 2014 but he's long been on the wrong age of 40 and the defense that he even flashed during their championship season i don't know if people been watching that's not coming back <laughs> so um and we don't even got to talk about his just egregious shot selection, which is worse than, in my opinion, the Manu Ginobili's in his prime. I mean, he's just getting worse as he's getting older. It, it's, it's interesting. This seems going to be a lot of, um, it's going to be interesting. That's all I have to say about it. I really don't even have much of an advanced opinion. I've been trying to think about them, and they they can go as high as, you know, fifth or sixth for me in the playoff, in the playoffs, and, and in the playoff um, seating, and really make some noise in the first round and possibly even make some noise in the second. They could flame out and not even make the playoffs. The variance for them is so high. It's 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 kind of crazy. I mean, I, I had them out of the playoffs before this whole mess of the Minnesota Timberwolves disaster was, came up. Yeah, like, I, I had the yeah. Wolves in the playoffs before all the reports came out and the Spurs missing it. Um, and now I, I think the Spurs will make the playoffs and replace the Wolves in that. But that's a whole other discussion. But back to, yeah, DeJounte Murray, there are big expectations for him, not only this season, but just like his ability to develop into a potential star player is huge for their traje- trajectory moving forward. Obviously, I don't think Popovich will be sticking around. All their main guys are either in their prime or past their prime. But Murray is that guy who's obviously, what, just turned 22, I think, Um the All NBA defender last year, he needs to improve his shot, like you said, at least the catch, at least have a, somewhat of a catch and shoot jump shot from beyond the arc when he's open it when teams aren't guarding him. Because let me run through these these numbers. Last season, he shot twenty six point five percent on threes. He only attempted thirty four attempts, which is is a laughable number. Um, Fifty eight point six percent at the rim, which is about league average. Thirty six percent from within three and ten feet of the rim. 34.4% from within 10 and 16 feet of the rim, so a traditional kind of mid-range jumper, and 36.7% from 16 feet to the three-point line. Those are some really bad shooting numbers. If you can just develop somewhat of a capable catch-and-shoot jump shot, um, and the article, Zach Lowe had an article about intriguing players that he's watching this season, and Murray was on that list, and there was reports that he has been working um, on his jump shot, at least to be able to knock down shots when he's wide open, when when uh, Aldridge and DeRozan are getting all the attention. If he can develop that, still play at his all-NBA defensive level play, Handle more, handle the ball more. Maybe shoot a little bit better um, at the rim with his with his weird length. And he said he has maybe more burst to show off um, and can kind of run by guys instead of using you know limited speed and you know untraditional you know footwork and movement to do that. There, I mean, there his path to becoming a, a top player at the point guard position is huge for their the Spurs franchise overall. You know, years from now, and not only this season when he needs to improve as a jump shot to be more of an off ball player um, and still provide that defense because he. <laughs> He's their most important defensive player. I mean, he's their best defensive player on the roster. 
Uh, and he's one of the one of, if not the most important defensive player, even though he's playing the point guard position, which sometimes can be a little bit overrated in terms of defensive performance uh, importance, I should say. Um, mm-hmm. What what other young players can step up? I mean, does Derek, do Derek Wright and Lonnie Walker carve out a consistent role? Jakob Podol kind of projects as that backup big. Um, I think they'll need whatever White and Walker can kind of provide offensively, and I think that Podol, you know, his physical presence in the paint. Um, he showed uh, he showed some nice things as a backup center in Toronto last season. I think they could use him as well, especially as as Gasol continues to age and kind of become irrelevant in today's NBA. Um, even though Gasol's kind of added a three point shot, while Poto can't really stretch the floor at all. Um, listen, like you said, I think Popovich, if he comes back, this is one of his one of the most interesting potential coaching jobs he has, and one of the most difficult in terms of being able to carve out a team that is at least above league average on both ends of the floor. Because if this team is top 10 defensively, given their roster, it might be his most impressive coaching job ever. I mean, if you run through this roster, mm-hmm. how many plus defenders do they have? Murray, is Aldridge One. a plus defender? I don't really know. No, I don't okay. even think for his position. He's okay. serviceable. Okay, so Rudy Gay, Rudy Gay is not a plus. DeRozan's not a plus. Gasol, at this point, is not a plus. He can, he can defend the rim a little bit, uh, but he's still mm, he's not. Still got some, yeah. He's okay. But Murray's their best defender off the bench. Patty Mills, no. Bryn Forbes, no. Bellinelli, no. please don't even talk about <laughs> defense. Uh, Cunningham and, and Pondexter, we don't even know if they're going to have consistent roles because they have not. They've been trying to stick around on a team's rotation for a while, um, but they just really haven't. Quincy Pondexter had the, had the weird knee injury infection, everything like that. Davis Bertans, not a positive defender. Who 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 is the positive defender on this team besides Murray and Gasol's passable? Um, and that's it, I guess. It's going to be... You nailed it. That's I mean, it. if they're top 10 defensively, that might be the best coaching job Popovich has ever done. And what about their offense? Their offense was 17th last year. Can it really improve to even top 10 with considering the limited shooting that they have on the floor? I mean, that would also be an impressive coaching job as well. So I feel like I'm ranting about how, how many questions... I mean, there's a lot of question marks with this team. And yet, because of the Timberwolves disaster, you know, blow-up potential right there, I still think the Spurs... I'm going to pick their over on over 45, um, and I think that they can probably get anywhere from 46 to 48 wins, and I think they're back in the top eight of the West, even with all my concerns and question marks and doubts about this roster on both ends of the floor. Yeah, uh, first I'm going to issue an apology. I was stuttering pretty mad a couple minutes ago because I couldn't remember DeJounte Murray from DeAndre, and I was too scared to mess up. That is right there just a cardinal sin for anyone who professes to follow the NBA. So had to put that out there. Secondly, I'm going to put the over as well. I'm going to hedge right between you and put a good 47. <laughs> and I'm going to say that you're right. If the Spurs, um, if, if the Spurs, re- if the Spurs do get, let's say, top five, top six in the playoffs, I'm going that far. I'm going to say even top four. It's going to be clearly Greg Popovich's best coaching performance just ever because this is a team that, like you said, not only do they not have standout defenders outside of one clear cut in DeJounte Murray, but they also just have a really interesting roster that is almost like a back from the future in how they're going to play, emphasizing post play and mid range jump mid range jumpers. And for Popovich to go in there, make the changes that are gonna be necessary, I mean it's gonna be interesting to see. And I think what's also interesting to see is how quickly the Spurs come to form. Because usually they start off kind of slow you know, they kind of meander there. Then they really pick up pace. And by the time they get to the rodeo, um, the rodeo round trip or the rodeo trip, they're, they're pretty set. Where, you know, now in this Western Conference, it's probably best to be fine-tuning now and just get these teams that are kind of weak on the schedule, you know, seal some wins and then set up that barrier. Because who knows? You know, I mean, Minnesota now, it's not as um, 
as as dire as I originally thought it was going to be because I thought they'd be in the mix. I thought the Pelicans, obviously, are still going to be in the mix. It was going to be a little bit tighter. I think having one team just clearly fall out of contention for the playoff spot will be will be a little more room for San Antonio. But I do think it is imperative that they make their mark early because you never know. All it needs is one key injury, and, and Pop has really done great unlike other coaches as far as coaching through adversity and through the loss of a team player. Look at what happened last year with Kawhi only being available for nine games. But by that same token, this team isn't built like it was in the past. It, it's definitely interesting, and there's a lot more players that are one-sided, either on one end of the floor, usually offense, or in DeJounte's case, just on the other end. You know, So it, it, it's, it's one of the most unique rosters I've seen in a Spurs team and one of the more unique rosters I've seen, period. Just kind of weird, funky, like 2017 uh, – Bulls funky. <laughs> I mean, we haven't even. I mean, we haven't even talked about the potential for Lamarcus Aldridge to not, to not have as good a season as he did last year. Because last year yes. was a really big bounce back kind of revitalization year for him. And if he takes a step back offensively, I forget about defensively. Um, that they're also in trouble, at least on the offensive end. And that's obviously a key, arguably their best player, Demar Derozan's in that case as well. But there's obviously regression potential from him, Gasol for sure. Patty Mills as well, maybe Rudy Gay. He was solid last year. Maybe he's not as solid this year. Bellinelli can have regression as well, especially with his with his uh, shot choice. So, I mean, I'm still going the over. I think 45 is a little bit too low because I have so much faith in, in Popovich. And, you know, I love Murray a lot. And I, I like a couple of their pieces overall. But the fit is a question mark on both ends of the floor. Um, and in this Western Conference, I think they're going to barely squeak into the playoffs and only because the Timberwolves are kind of collapsing right now. But I'm going the over. Um, anywhere from 46 to 48 wins, squeaking into the playoffs for the Spurs this season. Same. It's going to be interesting to see. They're getting in, though. That's that's what I'm saying as well. Uh-huh. All right. That'll wrap up our Southwest Division preview. Uh, we only got two more divisions left. We'll be back um, next week with another division preview episode, and maybe by then a Jimmy Butler trade reaction and analysis episode. <laughs> we only got to gotta wait and see if that happens for sure. But uh, you can definitely follow us on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Eric Sparrows NBA. Definitely follow us at the 94 underscore on Twitter. Remember, we changed our name. We're now the 94 instead of the 94 Feet Report. So subsequently, we're also the 94 NBA podcast. Um, so follow us on Twitter, and you'll get all the updates for the podcast and our, and our new new look and our new website and all the great NBA coverage that we're providing at the 94. Of course, Corbin, you can throw out where everyone can follow you. Oh, at Corbin Ford NBA and at the 94. Big stuff coming. We've been saying it. Y'all have been taking notice. I don't know, but big stuff happened. I'm just going to keep saying it until y'all notice. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Follow us on Twitter for the updates for the next episode um, and just to follow all of our great NBA content. Take care. All right, y'all.